This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and opinions that will probably piss you off. Listener discretion is advised. Wilderness, animals, and northern lights make the last frontier attractive to many people looking to escape the hustle and bustle of life in the lower 48. The essentially non-existent gun laws and low tax rates make it attractive to a smaller subset of the population, libertarians. I've had my eye on this massive icy paradise for years. It is my ultimate goal. One might argue that Utah and Alaska are very similar in a lot of ways, but as far as I know, Alaska doesn't get miserably hot in the summer. I do know that they did have a heat wave one year with very Utah-esque temperatures, but it's a rarity. Oddly enough, both states have Kennecott Copper Mine. Not sure if that's the same company or not, but it's a pretty weird coincidence. But the land of the midnight sun isn't just freedom and nature and metal ore. The city of Anchorage often ranks as one of the most dangerous cities in the U.S., right up there with Chicago and Detroit. The violent crime rate here is 11.4 per 1,000 people. In Salt Lake, it's 9.96 per 1,000 people. To be honest with you, I avoid Salt Lake City like the plague. It's a cesspool. It's gotten really bad in recent years, but I'll get into all that when we eventually get to the Utah episode. For now, let's focus on Anchorage as it's the largest city in Alaska. The level of violence here makes sense. Normal people who get sick of society aren't the only ones who run off to Alaska. There are a lot of unsavory characters who think they can disappear into the wild. Surprisingly, Alaska is one of two states that never had the death penalty. I didn't expect that at all, to be honest. It truly is a libertarian dream. So why are we here talking about Alaska on a death penalty podcast? Because, you silly goose, Alaska used to be a territory. And the territory of Alaska would hang people they deemed deserving of it. If you Google executions in Alaska, you'll find a list of 12 people. The first being a Native American known as Scutdor, who was found guilty of murdering Leon Smith and hung on December 29, 1869. His execution ended the Battle of Fort Wrangell. This was a very interesting case of retribution and revenge that just kept escalating until it ended in a formal execution. As fascinating as tribal laws and customs are, my focus is elsewhere in this podcast. I do suggest you look more into it, though, if you are interested. A little further down the list are two men who remain nameless, both executed in July of 1883, one for murder and one for... It doesn't say. Both of these men were Native Americans. There is another Native guy on here by the name of Hamilton who was hung for God knows what in 1921. It doesn't say. I'd like to believe it was for something heinous like murder, but due to the time period, I have to wonder if it wasn't just a case of being indigenous in a non-indigenous zone. Of the 12 total executions in Alaska, half of them are Natives. Racism was everywhere back then. I'm sure if I decide to do a Canada episode, I'll be able to dive even deeper into the horrible shit the indigenous peoples of the North were put through back then. While the guilt of some of these people might be questionable, there is one case where guilt can be proven without a doubt. That is the case of Eugene Lamore. In late December of 1946, Lamore and a man by the name of Austin Nelson robbed a grocery store in Juneau. 
During this robbery, the owner of the store, Jim Ellen, had his throat cut and he bled out. Four months after the murder, Lamore was arrested and sent to the federal jail in Juneau to await his fate. While there, he made and signed an incriminating statement which he'd later try to keep out of evidence on the grounds that it was coerced. If criminals were smart, they'd keep their mouths shut instead of backpedaling when it catches up to them. Regardless, Lamore's statement was deemed admissible and used to convict him. His statement reads in part, My name is Eugene Lamore. I am 44 years of age. I have lived in Juneau, Alaska since 1942. I am married to Elizabeth Coons. I have known Austin Nelson for about four years. On Saturday night about midnight, December 21st, 1946, I talked to Austin Nelson at Blackie's Bar on South Franklin Street, Juneau, and he suggested that we go to Jim Ellen's store on Willoughby Avenue and rob Ellen. He had suggested that several times before. Nelson at the time had a revolver belonging to me. I pleaded with Nelson not to kill Ellen. This was on the way to the store. When we arrived at the store, I put on a mask, but Austin did not put on any mask. Nelson tapped on the window, and Ellen came to the front door of the liquor store and opened it. We entered the liquor store. This liquor store is built inside of the grocery store. It was about 12.45 o'clock when we entered the store. We first had stopped at Frank Pineda's place before we arrived at Ellen's store. Ellen went to the back of the store, and Nelson followed him, and Nelson said, This is a stick-up. Nelson then pushed the gun against Ellen, and I pushed him into the grocery store. He had my gun. Then I heard a scuffle and I thought Nelson had just knocked Ellen out by hitting him over the head with the gun. The gun was not loaded, but we had decided to knock Ellen out with the gun if he offered resistance. I knew we went there to rob Ellen. Then when the scuffle was over, Nelson came back into the liquor store where I was and opened the cash register and took out the money. I did not know how much money he got until later on. When Ellen walked to the back of the store after we entered, I switched off the lights and it had been agreed between Nelson and myself that I would remain in the liquor store as a lookout while Nelson did the robbery. After taking the money from the cash register, Nelson went back to the rear of the store, perhaps to the kitchen, but I could not see. Then I heard water running as from a tap. Then Nelson came back to the liquor store and said, let us go out the back door. Then he went out the back door, and I went out the front door after Nelson had come around in front of the store so I could see him. We then went up over the steps by the CU apartments and walked to the Alaskan Hotel. We went upstairs and entered the men's toilet on the first floor up. Nelson then took out from his pocket a roll of bills and divided them and put half back into his pocket and put my share on the floor. When I stooped to pick up the money, I noticed blood on my coat and found that this had come from Nelson's clothes when I brushed past him to pick up the money. I said when I noticed the blood, Good God, man, what happened? What did you do? Nelson said, I had to do it. I had to do it. There was considerable blood on Nelson at the time, and I also got some on my hat when I stooped over to pick up the money. My share of the money was a little less than a thousand dollars. It was all in currency. When I got up from bed on Sunday morning, December 22nd, I washed my coat to try to get the spots of blood off it. I then burned my hat and rubbers, although there was no blood on my rubbers. 
After Nelson's arrest, Deputy Marshals Helen and Thompson came to my house and talked to me and examined my shoe packs which I had on then and looked over all the clothes I had on. That night, I threw my overcoat into Gold Creek. I did not kill Jim Ellen. I never touched him and I did not see Nelson kill him. I spent part of my share of the money Nelson and I divided that night, but the greater part of it was stolen from the woodshed where I had hidden it. When we went to Jim Ellen's store on the night of December 21st or early morning of December 22nd, 1946, I had no intention of killing him and our intention was to rob him and knock him out if necessary, but nothing more. That I had taken the cartridges out of the gun and I did not know that he would be killed. I did not know that Nelson had a knife or razor, and if I had known, I would not have gone with Nelson at all. Dated at Juneau, Alaska, July 1st, 1947. The foregoing statement was dictated by me, and after it was typewritten, I read it and also had it read to me, and I fully understand it. That statement does not at all seem coerced to me. And while Lamore himself didn't kill Jim Ellen, he was there when it happened. He participated in a robbery that led to murder. That makes him guilty. Deserving of the death penalty? Perhaps not. But it is partly due to his actions that this man died. Maybe life in prison would have been more acceptable in this case. He didn't slash Jim Ellen's throat after all. But this is 1940s America. Eugene Lamore was hung on April 14, 1950. It took him 13 minutes to die. There is no information on his last words or last meal. McCarthy is a small mining town in the lower part of Alaska. In the year 1983, the population was a mere 22 residents. I've lived in a metropolitan area my entire life. A small town, to me, is like 3,000 people. Can you imagine living in a place so isolated that there aren't even enough people to operate a Walmart? I sure can. That's the dream. The peace of this remote Alaskan village was shattered on March 1st, 1983, when an unemployed computer programmer with a gun wiped out six of the inhabitants. This Ted Kaczynski-looking motherfucker by the name of Louis D. Hastings randomly decided to go on a rampage. By 2 p.m., six people were dead and two were injured. One survivor, Christopher Richards, recalled Hastings saying to him, Look, you're already dead. If you'll just quit fighting, I'll make it easy for you. Rather than give up, Richards grabbed a knife and slashed at his attacker. Alaskans are fucking resilient. He was shot in the head and neck. A neighbor flew him a hundred miles northwest up to Glen Allen, where he was treated for his wounds. It was during this hospital stay that he told police Hastings had shot him completely out of the blue after being invited in for a cup of coffee. A 32-year-old woman named Donna Byram was struck in the arm and survived but the police would not allow her to be interviewed. After all was said and done, Hastings was injured and covered in blood. He was discovered on a snowmobile 20 miles outside of McCarthy. While being arrested, he didn't resist, but did decline to say whether he was armed or not. He was treated for the cuts Mr. Richards had given him while defending himself and further questioned by police. Hastings had decided to murder the town of McCarthy. Why? The same reason the U.S. won't keep their hands to themselves. Oil. Black gold. Not because he wanted the oil for himself, though. He had previously volunteered in California to clean oil off the birds after an offshore oil spill. 
After moving up to Alaska, he became bothered by the influx of people and money into the state. He wanted to preserve the wilderness he had escaped to from California. You know, I kind of get it. I wouldn't go around murdering people, though. I really wish people would put their anger into something positive rather than slaughtering innocent people. Hastings saw the Trans-Alaska Pipeline as a destructive force in an untapped landscape. His plan after murdering all those people was to sabotage the pipeline. He would go up to the Heglins place, I'm assuming that's some of the residents up there, and lay in wait and then kill anyone who got off the mail plane. Can you imagine living in a place where your mail is delivered by plane? That's fucking awesome. He would then kill the pilot and steal the plane, fly it to a pump station, and rig it to take off again with no one inside. I'm not really sure how he would have managed that, but I'm not a computer engineer. After doing this, he would steal a fuel truck and ram into the pipeline while also shooting at it. Because of the cold weather, Hastings believed that the fuel would congeal the oil in the pipeline to reduce environmental damage. He hoped that the truck he sat in would burst into flames and char his body beyond recognition. While he may have been deserving of that, I am very glad he was caught before it happened. Hastings was described as a bright, nerdy academic whose wig is probably on a little too tight, and he was compared to, you guessed it, Ted Kaczynski. On December 7, 1983, he was indicted on six counts of first-degree murder and two counts of attempted murder. He entered a no-contest plea. Want to guess what he was sentenced to? I'm sure you already know. I mean, this is a death penalty podcast. This motherfucker got 634 years, one of the longest sentences in Alaskan history. Did he deserve the death penalty? You fucking bet. But since Alaska abolished it in 1957, this was the only option. I say hand the bastard a gas can and a match and let him live out his final wishes. But, you know, that's that's just me. He's still alive today, rotting away in prison and eating up tax dollars. There is no last meal or final words yet, and we won't get to know what they are when it's finally time. I decided to look more into recent cases where Alaskans were facing the death penalty. As I mentioned in the Alabama episode, the federal government can still take you out even if your state won't do it. It was in this search that I found a case that didn't conclude until 2022. John Pearl Smith II from Palmer was convicted of 10 felony charges, including two counts of murder, as well as other drug and firearm charges. Rather than earn an honest living like the majority of us do, Smith decided to get his millions by targeting drug traffickers and robbing them. That seems like a great plan in theory, but it backfired on him. In 2015, he identified a house off Nick Goose Bay Road in Wasilla as a marijuana growing operation. He showed up one night with a shotgun and fired a warning shot to scare the resident before making off with drugs, guns, and jewelry. Thankfully, the resident was unharmed. In May of 2016, he targeted another house he believed to be occupied by a drug dealer. Like before, he went in with a shotgun, but this time he used duct tape to restrain the residents before stealing their drugs, cash, and a revolver. Again, no one was harmed. A little shaken up, I imagine, but still alive. Just one month later, in June, Smith broke into another house in Wasilla. Inside the detached garage, he found Ben Gross, the owner of the property, along with Crystal Denardi and a second man. Smith fired warning shots into the ceiling, probably expecting things to go as they had before. 
Ben threw a beer bottle at him in response. In turn, Smith shot him four times, which ended up killing him. I have to give props to Mr. Gross for defending his property, though. He's got some serious balls. Smith held the other two victims at gunpoint while he searched the garage for valuables and drugs. Before leaving, he shot Crystal in the back of the head and killed her. The third victim was shot in the chest and head while trying to flee, but managed to get on a kayak and get across Cloudy Lake to a house and get help. Alaskans are not ones to be fucked with, apparently. Goddamn. They are resilient. <laughs> Before leaving, Smith poured gasoline around the deceased victims and set the garage on fire. He was arrested on June 28th. Because of the drug charges, he was able to be tried in federal court. For whatever reason, the federal district court judge in Alaska decided to spare his life, but in doing so, has decided that Smith will spend the rest of his life behind bars. Before I go, I'd like to mention a case that has connected Alaska to the desert wasteland I currently reside in. In 2017, a man from Santa Clara, Utah, no idea where that is, probably somewhere far south, was charged with murdering his wife while on a cruise in Alaska. Kenneth Manzanares beat his wife Christy to death in a cruise ship cabin after they got into an argument where she stated she wanted a divorce. Their two children, along with other family members, were in an adjoining cabin. Christy died of blunt force trauma to her head and face. Kenneth got 30 years in federal prison, but due to his age, I'm sure he'll die there. We can only hope. I'd normally close this out with a quote about the evils of a dead man living on, but that doesn't seem fitting for this one. I'll leave you with a quote from Lois McMaster Bujold. The dead cannot cry out for justice. It is a duty of the living to do so for them. See you next time. <laughs>